Okay. All right. Well, please turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. <clears throat> and well, actually, the four, chapter 4, verse 12, because I'm going to read uh, the last eight verses of chapter 4 to give us a running start, because I want you to be aware that Peter isn't changing subjects. He's actually continuing on. And let me uh, remind you that the the situation that Peter is addressing. He is writing from Rome to the churches in what is modern-day, many churches that are at what is modern-day Turkey, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, the city of Pontus, and the province of, provinces of Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And they are, they're all in a hostile world. The Roman Mediterranean world was a hostile world. It was a pagan world. It was a, and by the way, paganism was part of the uh, authority complex. It was part of the government. If you stop being a pagan, then uh, you mean you're not going to worship the emperor anymore? And by the way, I don't know if it was annual, but there was a regular time for all Roman citizens not everybody, but every Roman citizen where they would go before a local magistrate, here is a bust of the Caesar, and they were to burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And the emperor was, that's emperor worship. Well, the Roman citizens, like the Apostle Paul, who was a Roman citizen, they said, not going to happen. I am not going to continue my worship of the emperor. Now, the Jews typically had an exception to that because the Romans didn't want to do... But if you were a, a, a Gentile who was a Roman citizen and you came to faith in Christ, you're not doing that again. And so there were many Roman citizens who were Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ that chose martyrdom rather than emperor worship. And so this is a hostile environment. They have hostility from the Jewish community because they are not elevating the law keeping they're not elevating the pharisaical approach to approaching god which was all about being neat tidy law keepers nothing wrong with the law the law is a diagnostic tool however to show me what's wrong with me so that i can then do what abraham did cast myself on god's mercy so that I can do what David did, who committed adultery and murder, and says in Psalm 51, in confessing that sin, the very first verse is, have mercy on me, O God. And 300 years later, in his, his prophecy, Isaiah the prophet says, let me point you people, you wicked, wicked, wicked people of Judah, to the sure mercies of David. When David prayed for mercy in Psalm 51.1, he knew He'd get it. Why? Because David understood God. I'm going out on a limb here. He understood God better than anybody in his generation, and he knew he would get that mercy. God loves mercy. Hosea 6.6, 6, God loves mercy more than sacrifice. 
more than the neat, tidy law-keeping. He loves mercy. He loves when you are merciful to one another, when you are merciful to one another. And Jesus in Matthew's gospel twice quotes Hosea 6.6 to the Jewish leaders that are coming after. Jesus calls this tax collector, yuck, named Levi. That's his Jewish name. His his Greek name is Matthew. He calls him to become a follower. And then they are having a banquet in Matthew's house right after that. And lots of other tax collectors and harlots are there. And Jesus is sitting in there eating with them. And the Jewish leaders are standing. They wouldn't dare go in that. No way. I'm not going to defile myself going in that house. And they say to Jesus' disciples, what in the world is going on? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And the, uh, the disciples bring that to Jesus. This is what they're saying about you out there on the street. Well, you go back to them and ask those Bible scholars if they've ever read the prophet Hosea, I love mercy more than sacrifice. I have come to call sinners to repentance. That's why I've come. And they go back out and quote that <laughs> and with their tails between their legs, the Jewish leaders run away. And then later on in Matthew's gospel, probably speaking to a different group of Jewish leaders, Jesus quotes the same Hosea 6.6, I love mercy more than sacrifice. Well, the Christian church is still at odds with the Jewish community because the Jewish community elevates the Pharisees with their law-keeping and so on. That's, they're the wonderful super Jews. And here is the gospel that says, God loves mercy more than sacrifice. So there's conflict between the church and the Jewish culture. Now, there are lots of Jews who have come to believe God loves mercy more than sacrifice too. But also Gentiles. The gospel has been reached out to the Gentiles. And they're all, be, but they're all, because of the Jewish penchant towards law keeping and the Gentile elevating of paganism, there's conflict from two opposite directions against the church. And those who come to faith in Christ as Jews or as Gentiles, they're going to face opposition. 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Rejoice as you, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. The measure by which you join, this is 14.13, excuse me, 4.13 of 1 Peter, the measure by which you joined Jesus in his suffering is the measure by which you will experience kingdom, elevated Christ, 
kingdom joy. That when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. For if you, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory, expectation of great kingdom glory, and of God rests upon you. On their part, your enemy's part, he is blasphemed. I should say God's enemy's part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. Don't let your suffering be justified. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, one of the two times in the New Testament you have the word Christian. The other time is Acts eleven twenty six when it says Antioch was the first place where Jesus' followers were called were called Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians. It was a term of mockery from the community. They only want to talk about Christ, 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 Christ. That's all they want to talk about, those Christians. If you suffer as a Christian, <laughs> it was a term of mockery. Let him not be ashamed. Oh, yeah, boy, am I ever. Thank you. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. God's going to, he cleans up his own, his own property first. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. If you're suffering for the will of God, commit your soul. And the word soul in the Greek language, it can mean that innate part of us, our inner person, but it also can mean your life experience. Let them commit their life experience to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. God isn't going to forget what you did in his name, in his strength, to his glory. Now, chapter 5, verse 1. The elders, he addresses them as congregations. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Exactly what he's been speaking of. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory, which does not fade away. This is an elder who is a leader servant. Servant leader, servant leader. Was Jesus not a servant leader in the upper room? What shocked the apostles? 
including, and Judas Iscariot was still there, by the way, as Jesus laid aside his outer garment, wrapped himself with a towel, and washed their feet. The most demeaning task any human being could do for another in that culture. Anything having to do with the feet was considered demeaning. They would take their shoes off at the door and come in barefoot. But they had walked through the filthy, 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 filthy streets of Jerusalem. And I'm talking filthy, folks. It's where people dumped out their chamber pots. If you don't know what that is, ask me later. And so when they came, they had bathed in the place where they were staying, but their feet were filthy, and those 12 apostles had refused to wash one another's feet. And so Jesus washed their feet and they are struck dumb until Jesus gets halfway around the table and gets to Peter who's reclining on his divan as they all are around this low table for the Passover feast and Peter says stop it you're humiliating yourselves this is so wrong if I do not wash you you have no part with me well then not my feet only my hand is my head too no Peter stop it <laughs> I'm washing your feet you already bathed. They were shocked by that. Jesus is the personification of the servant leader. And then within a few hours, he is embracing a cross on purpose. He could have called, as, as he says in the garden, he could have called 10 legion, 12 legions of angels. Folks, that's, that's 72,000 angels. A legion was 6,000. He could have called 12 legions of angels to defend him, and he didn't. And he could have called them all the way through, and he didn't. He was our servant leader. Elders, be servant leaders. Don't dominate the flock. And in fact, shepherds in the ancient times, and even now, other than <laughs> it was the British, I think, that came up with the idea of, of these border collies and so forth that, you know, we're going to hurt, we're going to push the sheep where we want them to go. Before that, and most of the world even today, shepherds lead the flock. They lead the flock, and the flock knows our place of safety is that guy. <laughs> we're surrounded by predators. Our place of safety is that guy. He knows where the green pastures are. He knows where the still waters are. I, I, by the way, I love this fact. Sheep will not drink muddy water. And they will not drink from water that is a flowing spring or stream. It's got to be still, clean water. Now, that's why whenever you're leading, if you're leading a combined flock of sheep and goats, you always let the sheep drink first. Because goats don't care. Goats will jump in the water and have a blast in that water and they all stir up all that mud and it'll get all muddy and the sheep will, we're not drinking that. And so the shepherd had to make sure the sheep got to drink from the still waters. Here's the green pastures. But he led them. He led them. And one of the things that I find fascinating is if there was a particular lamb that was really a knucklehead and was not doing what, it, not following, the shepherd would take that lamb and he would break its leg. Wow. And then he would put that lamb on his shoulders and carry it 
until the, for weeks, if necessary, days at least, if not weeks, till that leg was healed. And by that time, that lamb is so attached to that shepherd, it's not going anywhere. So it was actually an act of kindness to protect that knucklehead lamb, and believe me, sheep are dumb, uh, to protect it from itself in days to come. Has God had to break your leg and throw you on his shoulders for a while? Just saying. <laughs> That's what a loyal, good shepherd does. As it says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. So what I just said to you about how shepherding was done, that would have been, they would have automatically, they wouldn't have needed that explanation. They all knew it. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. Not because you're forced into it, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain. Not to line your pockets, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but examples to the flock. Leaders so the sheep will follow you. You don't... of course, what did we, we, we switched this whole shepherding thing around where we, we shove the sheep around with, with border collies. Well, that's called lording it over the flock. In the ancient times and on the other side of the world, even today, the shepherds lead the flock. As being lords over those entrusted to you, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The crown of glory that does not fade away. Every emperor, every king, every queen who has ever lived, every empress who has ever lived, they lost their crown upon the event of their death. Well, when we step into Jesus' kingdom, we will be crowned with a crown that will never fade away. And it's going, it is going to happen. And when it happens, it will have happened forever. It will not fade away. There's not going to come a point in the kingdom where we say, oh man, this has gotten boring. I've been here 10,000 years. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. We will go from glory event to glory event to glory event. We will be constantly, wow, throughout eternity as God displays his glory to us and has elevated us to the place where we can enjoy it and not be burned up by it. Verse 5, likewise, you young people, submit yourselves to, el- to, the el- to your elders. Why? Because they're there to serve you. So if you submit to them, you're going to benefit. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, the entire congregation. In the same way that the elders are supposed to be servants, we're all supposed to be servants. We're all elders, deacons, deaconesses in training. 
We are all to be servants of one another, washing one another's feet. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Put other people's needs in front of your own. We just had a testimony from a lady here that said, there was a fellow that I had refused to serve. And God smacked me and said, yes, you will. Oh, and now God has strengthened her beyond her imagination to be able to do that. What's she doing? She is submitting herself to the needs, the desperate need of another person who's not even aware of it. (laughs) But Jesus is, and Jesus is the Lord of all, and he will make the difference. Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot, knowing that Judas Iscariot had already begun the process of his betrayal. Judas Iscariot had already gone to the Jewish leadership. He had already been paid the 30 pieces of silver. And Jesus knew it. And he says to the 12, which included Judas, of course, one of you will betray me. And then when Judas ate the piece of bread that had been dipped in the sauce, the sop, Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. And he stood up, Satan entered him, and he went on to complete his process of betrayal. But he was one of the ones that Jesus, whose feet were washed by Jesus. And if Jesus could wash the feet of Judas, so can we wash the feet of anyone He will enable us by the presence of his Holy Spirit dwelling within us to do it. Again, verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, young, old, in between, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace, enabling power to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. He will lift you up. He will lift you up. There was this fellow David who was rejected by his own family. In Psalm 27, many years later, he will say, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will lift me up. You don't say something like that out of nothing. That had been his experience when Samuel came to Jesse, the father of David's house, and said, Jesse, God has chosen one of your sons, one of your sons, to become the next king. I'm here to anoint him. And Jesse invited seven sons in, and God said no seven times. Do you have any more sons? Well, there's the one we keep out with the sheep. And David is brought in, and as soon as he walks in the door, God says, that's my man. Though your father and your mother forsake you, the Lord will take you up. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And it was several years, many years later, before David would go to the throne. But it was a set in place. It was going to happen. There was a due time for him to come to that throne, and he went to it. And there is a due time for us when we will step into the presence of Jesus and be elevated to the place that he has prepared for us. Be sober. 
excuse me, verse 7, casting all of your care upon him, for he cares for you. He isn't neglecting you. He isn't forgetting you. You haven't, he has, his attention never is diverted from you. Be sober. See things as they really are. Be vigilant. Be alert. Watchful. Keep on the alert. Keep your eyes open. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You need to be alert because you have an enemy. One of the things I love, I read this decades ago. <laughs> Way back, uh, there was a, I think the name of the book is Hunter. But anyways, it's, about an, it's, a true, it's a true account of a guy who made a living as a hunter in East Africa. And one of the things he points out in his book is that when that lions actually, when they are hunting for prey, they're extremely quiet. They don't want you to know they're there. But there's an exception. If you're an old lion and your arthritis is bothering you and you've lost a couple teeth and maybe your claws aren't as sharp as they used to, then those lions roar in hopes of exciting desperate fear in the hearts of the prey. And the prey animals will just flee, hoping that one of those animals will run right into his arms, into his paws. So if you hear a lion roaring, this fellow says, it means it's an old lion who's hoping to instill fear and panic in you so you'll run right into his claws and mouth. Satan goes about like a roaring lion. That kind of stuff was known by Peter who, and the people in that area who were shepherds or fishermen. They, they're they're men, men of the outdoor rural areas. They knew about the old lions that roared, that had lost some teeth and claws and weren't as energetic as they used. Satan is the same way. Satan's power has been broken. But if he can incite you to panic, then you will do a foolish thing and one run because you are fearing him instead of God, respecting God, him instead of God. As long as you fear God, as long as you have your eyes fixed on God, Satan can't lay upon you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Don't run into his paws. Resist him, steadfast in the faith. Not steadfast in faith, that energetic power that God has granted to us as we walk. No, it's the faith, this body of truth. What Satan is a liar. Satan trades in lies. And so the more your mind is informed by God's word, the more you are able to identify his lies. And they're usually a lie wrapped around by a wrapper of truth. Some truth with a lie, and all it takes is one drop of poison to kill you. 
resist him steadfast in the faith. If you know the truth, if you have an adequate grasp of the truth, you have what you need to be able to identify Satan's work. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Oh, Lord, I'm the only person I know that's suffering this way. Nonsense. (laughs) I can name for you, God says, hundreds, thousands of names you've never heard that have gone through the same thing you are. And I was with them through the process. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, all provision, who called us to his eternal glory, the God of unrestrained, immeasurable provision, has called us to his eternal glory. Not just that we could see it, Folks, we're going to share in it. We're going to be sitting at the head table, enjoying his presence, wearing our wedding garments. (laughs) We are his bride, and we're going to be there at the table. The church is the bride of Christ. After you have you've suffered. But may the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen you. He's going to complete the reality of what you need to be before him as a useful instrument to him. Establish, give you a firm foundation, strengthen and settle you. He's going to step into you and you make you a stalwart person like a stalwart building. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When Satan, through his human minions, or the, Satan himself and his, the fallen angels with him, when they attack you... <coughs> attack you, God will be your defender. And to him, God, be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And you are part of that dominion. When he defends you, the world will wake up and pay attention. That's why The more the church suffers, the more martyrs there are, the more of a gospel explosion there is. Because pagans look at the Christians who are saying, like Stephen, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Do not lay this sin to their charge. You think that didn't affect Saul of Tarsus? Of course it did. It is hard, Jesus says to Saul of Tarsus, in the, his face in the dirt outside. It is hard for you to kick against the goads, that pointed stick. 
Saul's conscience was beat bloody by what he had seen from Stephen. And he knew, I, Saul of Tarsus, could never have forgiven someone who was stoning me to death. No way. He hadn't voiced that to anybody, but Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it. To him be glory, the glory and the dominion forever and ever, and we are part of his realm. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly. He's, been, he's the amanuensis. He's the secretary that's been writing down this letter as I've dictated it to him. Silvanus. By Silvanus, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And if you read through 1 Peter, he's actually, it's all one giant encouraging letter in the midst of our suffering, but here is the promised glory. Here's the, and Peter re, essentially repeats that message over and Why? Because we need it. I don't even know where I heard this decades ago. Repetition is the price of learning. How many times do we need to hear something before it finally sticks? Well, it varies from one individual to another and one issue to another. But repetition, and Peter repeats why he's, we need to hear it. It needs to be stated not just once, but over and over. Because I'm a slow learner. I tell you something, folks. I'm a slow learner. <laughs> I'm a slow I need to hear it more than once. I've written to you briefly by Sylvanus's pen, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, the she is the congregation. The Greek word we translate church, ekklesia, is a feminine. They have, they have masculine, feminine, and neuter words in Greek and Latin and other languages. This uh, ecclesia, the word translated church, is a feminine word. She, the church who is in Babylon. Babylon was a uh, first and second century kind of a secret term the Christians had for Rome. He's writing to them from Rome. She, the church that is here in Rome, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. This is the same Mark who was the nephew of Barnabas, with whom Barnabas and uh, Paul ministered. He later became, and Peter knew him before Paul did, because he was part of the church. His mother, the church met, one of the places where the church met in Jerusalem in the early church was the, the house of his mother, the niece of Barnabas. And so that's why John Mark later just called Mark, was accompanying Barnabas because he was the nephew of Barnabas. But now he's ministering, and he had ministered in Jerusalem with Peter, and now he's in Rome with Peter, as Peter writes this. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. My son, not literal son, but son in the faith. Greet one another with a kiss of love. 
and kissing one another at the door was standard uh, in both the Gentile and Jewish culture, standard way of welcoming. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all in Christ Jesus. That's not just a nice way to end a letter or send it. He means it. Authentic peace, authentic peace belongs to everyone who is in Christ Jesus. Unlike anybody else on the planet, nobody can have authentic peace except those who are vitally joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody else is in some form of jeopardy or another. We alone stand with perfect safety in his care. Any comments or questions? If we are not steadfast in the faith, if we do not keep looking at our environment through gospel lenses, Bible lenses, absolutely we can lose our peace. We have to be choosing by the help of God's Holy Spirit to be in the Word and people of the Word. This is really our bread right here, this Word. Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so grateful we can call you Father. You have welcomed us with open arms, just as you did with the prodigal son, that son who took off, went to a far country, whom you had given a third of your wealth, and he went to a far country and threw it all away on wine, women, and song. And then he was reduced to feeding pigs when he realized my father's servants are better off than I am. I will return to my father and, and ask him just to allow me back in the house as a servant. I certainly don't. I've forfeited any right to be called a son. And as he's coming up the road in his filthy garments, you, Father, as we came up the road in our filthy garments, you saw us and you threw away your dignity and ran to meet us and threw your arms around us and threw a banquet of welcome and welcomed us back. You welcomed us as authentic heirs of you, your sons, your heirs. We give you the praise. And we are just overwhelmed by thanks for your mercy on us. In your name, Father, and in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Sure. All right. We are going to sing a song we've never sung before. That's dripping with sarcasm. We're going to close with Jesus paid it all. No, just the chorus. It's in the hymnal. <clears throat> okay, well, let's go ahead as in the as my wife is I will I will humble myself before this this uh, congregant.
and uh, we will sing the entire song. Okay, how's that? Let's see. Jesus paid it all is number 305. Did you take the thumb drive out? I even had a marker in here. <laughs> <laughs> 